All right, Jeremy Schapp, we are here. We are back for the first ever, first ever part two of an ESPN Daily episode. <laughs> I am I am honored and flattered. Thank you, Pablo. So we're here because we had just finished what felt like an end, honestly, right? To the story of the great imposter, Barry Bremen. That was yesterday's episode. And please go listen to that. If you have not yet done so, it is essential. It is staggering. And it is where, Jeremy, you laid out the full legend of Barry Bremen's life. Our Sportsman of the Week is a man who put on a spectacular show two days ago in the National Basketball Association's All-Star Game. He was an imposter. I got there and said, fellas, just stay cool. I got a bet going. All I want to do is be in the layup line or get a rebound. And what did they say? They loved it. They loved it. Bremen, the great imposter, is at it again, passing himself off this time as a professional golfer. What is, uh, what is this, This Barry? is right before I teed off in the U.S. Open in Inverness. I played nine holes, and uh, I parted the first three holes. I mean, I was terrific. For Bremen, a 32-year-old insurance salesman from Detroit, the All-Star Game would be his third attempt to pass off a frustrated athlete as a big-time athlete. When I had gotten caught in Seattle by the secret security, I figured, oh my God, how can I stop now? You know, as you said, maybe I'm a frustrated athlete or a frustrated actor. And you had explained how your dad, Dick Schapp, a legend in his own right, a legendary journalist, and your family had all become close to Barry's family. So close, actually, that you gave a eulogy at Barry's funeral in 2011. There are two kinds of people in this world, those who respect authority and those who defy it. We all know which side of the divide Barry Bremen fell on. But the craziest thing about this entire thing is that all of that stuff is not the craziest thing of this entire thing, Jeremy. There is a part of the story that had never, ever been reported before. It's a story that mm. I, I, again, I'm like, how do we get into this? But tell me, when did you come to learn that there was even more to your friend, the great imposter's story? Well, it was about three and a half years ago. It was beginning of 2019. So that's eight years after Barry Bremen has died. I'm talking to Aaron, his daughter, his youngest child. And Aaron tells me, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe what's going on. And of course I say, oh, what's going on? <laughs> and if I tell you, you know, Pablo, that even now, a few years later, I'm still kind of blown away by it. It's hard for me to wrap my head around because it came out of the blue. And in essence, Aaron told me she came home from a vacation and there was a letter waiting for her there. My husband, Doug, was going through the mail and came across this certified letter addressed to me. He opened it, and Doug you know, kind of gave me this weird look and handed me this letter. It so happened Margot Barry's widow was there at this moment in time mm. when Erin got the letter. I was standing next to her at the kitchen counter, and she said, Mom, read this. We had Aaron and Margot read the letter for us. Dear Aaron, I hope this letter finds you well. Recently, my mother told me and my sister that our dad was not, in fact, our biological father. We were pretty shocked. It is hard to wrap your head around 
a monumental change like that after 33 years of thinking something else. I decided to do 23andMe to get a better picture of who I was and hopefully who my biological father and his family were. So a woman has written a letter to Aaron and simultaneously sent copies to her brothers in which she reveals that she is their half-sister. That Barry Bremen, their beloved, departed father, is also her father, her biological father. And that, oh, by the way, she's not alone. My reaction was, all right, what do these people want? What is my legal position? I was in total shock, just blown away. So not long thereafter, Erin and her brothers and Margot see pictures of these people who are saying they're Barry's biological children. Mm. When I looked at those pictures, I immediately knew that they were my dad's children. Adam and Noah had also been sent these letters. Their reaction was, uh, I think, how many of us might react in a similar situation. I'm looking at it. And I'm just like, probably read it 10 times. Like, wait a second. It was really, 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 really shocking. I mean, who are these people? What does this all mean? I'm not all that excited about sharing my dad with somebody else. He's my dad. He's he's our dad. He's not your dad. I, I don't know how this all happened, but if you guys think for a minute he's your dad then we we need to have a chat about that and we need to sort that out because he's our dad and he's got three kids. And so, Jeremy, how did you react when you discovered this as well? Because this was also obviously a, a man and a family that you knew extraordinarily well. Well, of course, you know, there's the wow factor. (laughs) Initially, you know, it's not something you hear about every day. The idea that there are all of these offspring of Barry Bremen out there, you know, it it blows your mind. Um, And then you think, this is going to make a great two-part podcast (laughs) for Pablo. (laughs) (laughs) But I just said, you know, immediately... You know, this is an incredible story. You gotta, Jeremy, you gotta report the story. You gotta report the story. We gotta gotta talk to these people. The story was already sufficiently ridiculous. And for decades, the Bremen family had cherished it. They cherished how their father, Barry, a suburban dad and husband and insurance salesman, had risen to national fame as the great sports imposter. But once that letter, that mysterious letter, arrived in early 2019, the Bremens began to learn how Barry's legacy was bigger than any of them had ever realized. So today... Jeremy Schaff brings us part two of a story unlike any other. A story of family and identity and how technology has changed so many lives. 
and revealed so many secrets. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Wednesday, July 13th. This is ESPN Daily. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Jeremy, after you hear Aaron tell you about this letter and about the group of previously unknown children that her father, Barry, had, the journalist in you gets activated. (laughs) And so, as a journalist, as a reporter, where do you go next? Who do you talk to? The person um, who, you know, we describe as really kind of the the leader of the group who has brought this to the attention of the Bremen family is Rebecca. Oh, I'm in the chair. I'm in a set. Okay. We agreed not to use her last name. And I guess you could say, fittingly, in a story <laughs> uh, largely about the great imposter, she uh, preferred to be in disguise on camera. So, Rebecca, thank you for doing this. Why are you in disguise now? Okay, um, I'm in disguise because I love my sister, who I grew up with very much, and I love my dad, and I don't want them to be feeling betrayed or hurt. And I'm sure some people are like, then why are you doing this? But it weighs equally with people should know, and I feel like this story is important. (laughs) We sat down with Rebecca, and, and, you know, if it weren't for her, you know, they probably don't figure out who is their father. What led you down this path? My parents got divorced, and I love genealogy. I'm a self-proclaimed genealogist nerd. I had my whole tree, and, like, I've made books for my families, and I just, I love it. But at a certain point, she finds out something that really rocks her world. Her mother tells her that the father who raised her is not her biological father. And that, in fact, she was conceived via sperm donation. When my mom told me I was donor conceived, I was like, oh my gosh, um, new project. (laughs) So I took the 23andMe like two weeks after I found out, as soon as I could get my hands on one. That's 23andMe, the widely used genetic testing service that helps people learn about their genealogy and their heritage. My mom's side was very much what I expected. Irish and English and a little bit of French. (laughs) So that all made sense. That was exactly what I expected. And then the other side was 49.7% Ashkenazi Jew, Poland. And I was like, what? (laughs) Now, of course, Rebecca uh, did not think that she was Jewish. And Barry Bremen, well... He was. You scroll down and you can say connect with relatives. At that time, I think there were like 12. Again, this is three and a half years ago. There were about a dozen 
a dozen at this time. Wow. Who had identified each other through 23andMe and the find your relatives option there as Barry Bremen's biological children. And so I just send some messages being like, hey, I'm new. Like, does anyone know anything about the donor? And they're like, no. (laughs) And so I was like, you want to like try to figure it out? Remember, a generation ago, a project like this, it would have been impossible. But now we have this technology where you spit in a cup, you send it off to a lab, and you can find out with some degree of certitude, or maybe I should say a very high degree of certitude, you know, where your ancestors came from. And then you match that up with the genealogy websites, which have all these family trees from all over the world from, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of families that have contributed, you match those up with each other and you can get very specific. You you can find out everything, theoretically. I went on Facebook and went to a donor-conceived group and said, here's my situation. I connected with who I call our genealogy fairy godmother. She's done over 40 trees. She lives in Canada and she's a professor and she specializes in Ashkenazi Jews. So she reached out to me and she's like, I can help you. So part of the whole DNA decoding, family tree building, industrial complex, apparently is this profession of of genealogy fairy godmother, Jeremy? Yes, and I'm not even sure that it's professional in the sense that you get paid for it, but it is an area of expertise that some people specialize in. And Rebecca happened to to know this woman who was very skilled at it. And so she went to work. DNA is kind of like puzzle pieces to a person. So she was like, hey, ask your siblings if they're willing to get their raw DNA, and then we can have a better picture of where to start. She got a clear picture of a line that fled here to Detroit in the early 1900s. Benjamin and Pessy Krauss is who we narrowed it down to. And they're the ones that came over in 1904 from Poland. Once we got to them, and we knew that that was our great-great-great-grandparents or something like that, don't quote me on the greats, that's where my expertise came in, where I am very good at social genealogy. I look up censuses and records, and I can trace you down to today. My genealogy fairy. She had me watch some funerals and bar mitzvahs that were recorded. She's like, I need you to listen for these names. And then we kept double-checking her work and triple-checking it, and she finally was like, all right, I am 98% sure it's Barry Bremen. When you found out it was this guy, Barry Bremen, what were you thinking? Well, I didn't know him, even though I grew up in the area, but I mentioned to my mom, she goes, oh my gosh, I remember that guy. And I was like, what? And she's like, no, seriously, go Google him more. The gentleman dressed in a warm-up suit from the Kansas City Kings who came out and he was shooting layups with the Eastern Conference. I just remember being like, this is a hoot. Brent Musburger looks at me and his facial expression with his eyes like came out of his head and said, who the hell is he? I can see him looking at the rundown. So that is how those letters and the news of Barry's other kids ended up arriving in the physical mailboxes of the Bremen family. Jeremy, that is also how Erin now is standing in her kitchen with her mom, Margot, obviously just full of questions. So did Margot have any clue what any of this was about? Well, you know, when Erin shows her the letter and she's standing right there, 
and uh, she looks at it. It's not as if she says to herself, where the heck does this come from? Instead, uh, <laughs> instead, there was shock, but there was also recognition. And uh, she, she told Aaron why. I said, Aaron, let's go into the other room. I need to talk to you. I then proceeded to inform Aaron that back in the early 70s, after Noah was born, before Adam was born, Barry started being a sperm donor for an infertility specialist. He was to be anonymous and that the parents of the child would never know exactly who the donor was and that the children themselves would not know. Barry and I both loved being parents. And the thought of somebody else not being able to and that Barry had a means to help them. And so when the doctor asked, would he be willing to, our response as a couple was yes. So Noah, who's the oldest of the Bremen kids, uh, obviously, you know, this is stunning to him as well. I'm like, Mom, how many do you think? And she's like, I don't know. The doctor at that particular time said, Barry, you have incredible sperm. Incredible. <laughs> and I could just see my dad smiling from ear to ear. And he said, hey, Barry, you want to make some extra cash? Do you want to help some families? And he did. Yeah, Jeremy, all of this is clearly overwhelming. Also, I detect some amount of, of pride in Noah's voice there. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> About all of this, too. Um, so what kind of interest did... Margo and Noah and Aaron and Adam, did the family have in learning more about all of these new family members? First, of course, you know, there's the shock and then there's some apprehension, um, you know, as they express, like, who are these people? But there was also a realization that, you know, these are people unlike Noah and Adam and Aaron who don't know anything about their biological father mm. and, and that they have in some ways, I guess you could make the argument that they should have a right to know, and especially um, when it comes to his medical history and his family's medical history. If you see Barry, and you see Barry died at 64, and then you see he has a child who is a full-time wheelchair user, I felt that donor-conceived children deserve to know the medical background of their donor. And so I let Rebecca know that I would be happy to answer their questions. We set up a phone call with her and she told us how Barry had esophageal cancer and how awful that was and gave us a lot of history and then some fun stories. And then she's like, how many of you are there? All of a sudden they're finding out, how many are there? <laughs> you know, where does, this, where does this end? She had 17 other siblings, which seemed like a, quite a large number to me. Like, well, how many are there going to be, right? Like, all right, you start going from, you know, two to five. And then there was like a jump to 15, right? So it's like, like, is this never ending? My name is Ken Kuet. I'm 40 years old. 
I am a sales engineer by trade. My name is Ashley McDaniel. I live in San Antonio, Texas. My name is Matthew Bissett. I'm 45 years old. My name is Christine. I have my own jewelry business. My name is David Dooley. I'm 45 years old. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I've been an entrepreneur almost all my life. My mom kept a photo album on the coffee table, and so I'd always look at like pictures over and over again, and I just could not find any similarity to my dad. My father and I are, were two totally different people. I was a jock who also loved school, both of which couldn't be further from what my dad was. So, Jeremy, I've been trying to keep track of all of these voices and these names. How many biological children of Barry Bremen are out there? That's an excellent question, Pablo. And Rebecca is certainly better qualified than me to answer. How many half-siblings are you aware of at this moment in time? Counting uh, Bremen's social children, the ones he raised, so Noah, Aaron, and Adam, uh, there are 35 32 donor-conceived Barry Bremen children. That we know of, yeah. How many do you think there are? So our genealogy fairy suggested that there's probably like 60. Now, remember, Pablo, we interviewed Rebecca now. It's almost a year ago. And uh, the numbers, they keep rising. At last count... I might be one or two off. We were up to 37 donor-conceived <laughs> children in addition Wait. to Noah, Adam, and Aaron. Which means that the math, the extrapolation here, there's probably 60. There's probably then that much more. 60. 60. <laughs> I mean, 60 of them. And, and, and it could be more, right? I mean, to me, what do I know? That seems like on the low end of the range <laughs> of possibilities. Wait, Jeremy, hold, I mean, A, holy f***ing sh- Yep. B, the idea that Barry Bremen has upwards of 60 children that this reporting has uncovered. And you can't see this in this format, unfortunately, but I am looking at the faces of some, of many of these 60 people, and they look a whole lot like the great imposter. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, the familial resemblance is strong. Barry didn't just have great <laughs> sperm. It's he amazing. had strong genes. I don't know if his those two eyebrows, things are related. His nose, his, yeah. his cheekbones. It's there, man. I, it's, I wasn't it's, it's ridiculous. a biology guy. There, 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 there are a few who definitely favor, as they say, their mothers. Sure. But there's a lot of Barry there. There's, there's so much of, Barry. There's so much Barry. <laughs> And it's not just the physical part of it. That's what's fascinating, mm. too. I mean, there are some big personalities in this group, Pablo. <laughs> yes. Really big personalities. The kind of people you can see finding a way to sneak into the All-Star game and get on the court. <laughs> like, 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 no problem. You have a family tree, a family tree, Jeremy, of, of true performers, of, of people right. who carry an inherited confidence. Totally different. Like, my genes are, like, you know, apologetic, you know, like, 
maybe I can get a table in the back of the restaurant by the That's kitchen right. if you'll That's be right. so kind. But Sir, no, these as you are curtsy. people yeah. who walk in, you know, like I'm sitting there. Just just order for us. We'll sit there. And, and people are thanking them for showing up to the restaurant. You know, <laughs> like, like it's just a different sense of confidence. And I belong here in every situation. After the break. How Barry's family tree wound up branching out to so many different families around the country. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is, not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut, or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Now here, Jeremy, is where I also need to admit that, like, my mind is blown also just on the math of this, right? Like, I had never truly thought about the mechanisms, uh, the science of sperm donation. I'd assumed that there was just a cap on how many you could father via donation, I don't know, like five or 10 kids or something like that. How is it that one donor can end up with somewhere between 30 and 60 or 70 or whatever the number is? Yeah, that's really one of the central questions here, right? Anybody who hears the story says, what, that many? How did this happen? And, you know, when when she realized what we were talking about, the numbers, Margot had that question herself. When I called the clinic, The receptionist, she told me we were legally allowed to use his sperm 20 times. However, we often sent it to other 
gynecologist, and we were never told whether a live birth happened or not. We spoke to a lot of Barry's donor-conceived children, and they told us what their parents' experiences had been going through this process of getting Barry's sperm. My mom still had some paperwork from the clinic. I have a donor characteristics card. It was Scottish and English descent. How does this not match up to this characteristic sheet? My mom was made to believe that she was getting the sperm of a medical student. A medical student at the Health Science Center here in San Antonio, and that he was just working his way through medical school. and had My mom, it. she's like, well, I signed a document that said there was going to be five, and it was going to be used throughout. And I go, well, mom, that document didn't really kind of hold up. My mother can't really come to terms with the fact that her doctor lied to her. I think a lot of people were told some things that maybe weren't, weren't entirely true. It made me kind of question the medical side of it and the ethical side of it. Kind of opened my eyes to the whole business of donor-conceived children. And so what answers did you get, Jeremy? What answers were you able to obtain about what exactly did happen with all of these donations from Barry? We tried to get answers. Yeah, hi. Um, I was hoping you could help me. Uh, my name is Jeremy Schapp, and I'm a reporter at ESPN. We're doing a story about someone who was a sperm donor there a long time ago. You know, and we approached the clinic in question, International Cryogenics in Michigan, to, to find out more. Is there anyone around who might be able to answer some questions for us? Tuesday afternoon, she'll be in. What, what's her name? Marianne. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Ultimately, our attempts to interview someone at the clinic were unsuccessful. But we did talk to an expert, Judy Dar, an expert on the ethics of reproductive medicine. Unfortunately, it's not surprising, but it's certainly problematic. Misrepresentation as to the identity or any characteristics of the donor, that is unacceptable. It's legally wrong, it's morally wrong, it's medically wrong. Starting in the 1970s, how much oversight was there of the donor-conceived community in, in the reproductive world? In the United States, we have a reputation of being very laissez-faire in our regulatory approach to reproductive medicine. And that's just by way of saying that there isn't a federal framework that governs the use of these technologies and the application of these technologies. And it's only because of the advances in DNA tracing uh, and other technologies that we're able to see some of the problems that really did plague the field even at that time. Now, it's clear that this is a, an extraordinarily delicate, complex dynamic, most especially for these kids, now adults, who realize something that they did not know about themselves and where they came from. And that's obviously good and exciting and also kind of terrifying, Jeremy. You were talking to all of them. What did you find about how they felt about this? They're all different kinds of reactions, Pablo. I mean, for some of them... It's it's like a light going off. Like, I knew this didn't fit. You know, I knew without mm. having been told that they were donor conceived that something, you know, something didn't add up here in terms of who I thought I was and who I am. 
But the, the emotions here, and this is really what fascinates me, are so complex and they're so layered. And every situation, as we talked about, so many situations are different. Situations in which the father knew, the father who raised them knew, uh, situations in which now that father doesn't know that the child knows. It's not just finding out that your uh, social father who raised you isn't, but you're also finding out that your siblings are not your full siblings. And you're finding out that you're, you know, biologically as closely related to these dozens of new family as you are to the brother or sister you grew up with, biologically speaking. So there are so many different emotions, so many different feelings. And one of the strongest ones, of course, is that, um, you know, a sense of protectiveness uh, for the father who did raise them. When did you talk to your father about it? Um, I have not yet. So I imagine this story is gonna prompt me to break it to him, but it has been hard. My mother stressed so strongly that, you know, he begged and pleaded and made her promise to never ever tell me. And Rebecca, you know, who is, you know, the leader of, of the group, she insisted on being interviewed in disguise because of you know, the sensitivities of the situation with her own father. My dad was the best. <laughs> he taught me to ride a bike. He taught me to throw a ball. He taught me how to swim. I didn't fail math in high school because my dad made sure I passed. He was at all my games and all my performances. He was a good dad. <laughs> he was a really good dad. And that's why it's hard with everything that happened. And if he ever finds out, I hope he can see why I did it. <clears throat> so it's hard. But I also think that this is so important for people to know about because infertility is fine. Um, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And being donor conceived is nothing to be ashamed of. And having a donor conceived child is nothing to be ashamed of. You should be proud of yourself. Yeah, the definition of family, Jeremy, is is one of the themes running through all of this. What kind of kinship do you feel to people who are related to you, but you don't actually know? And now you have dozens upon dozens and dozens of, of new half-siblings scattered everywhere that have only known each other remotely, virtually, mm. it, it seems like. Did they ever meet in real life? Yeah, there, there were a number of meetings they would, the donor-conceived children among themselves, meet up with each other. That happened on a few occasions. And, you know, among themselves, it was one thing. But then it was like another step. We want to meet Margot and Noah and Adam and Aaron. We want to all meet up. And initially, uh, you know, this is some uh, mind-blowing news. You can understand why they had some apprehensions about uh, meeting their half-siblings and, and where all this would lead them. Still, I felt like, I don't know if I want to be part of this. It's a little bit weird. Um, I need some time to process it. When I talk to the siblings, the donor children, it's hard to digest and to really say that they're my family, but they are, but, you know, they're strangers. <laughs> so it's hard. You're working on it. I'm working on it, yes. But, you know, 
at a certain point, um, Noah and Adam and Aaron and Margot too, they wanted to meet them. They wanted to meet Barry's biological kids, the other ones. Noah and I talked about it and he had said, you know, Adam, this is really, really cool. This is great that, you know, that we have this story to share. I just started understanding what's important. And Barry was all about bringing people together, showing love, having fun. You're able to wrap your head around it. There was going to be no harm from this. There's nothing bad is to come of it. When we were in Michigan last summer to do a lot of these interviews, they also had a reunion. And, you know, they got together, the Bremen kids that he had raised and the donor-conceived kids. Is it a family reunion? I think one of the siblings says, well, it's not a family reunion. It's really a family union because we (laughs) haven't been around each other before. You've got all these children of Barry Bremen, right? And when you think about it, like, you know, they're all, they're all half Barry Bremen. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the kids that he raised are no more Barry Bremen, you know, biologically than the donor conceived kids. It's all about love and being together. And I'm just so happy to have you all in our lives. And I'm so grateful for the family that we have and to be able to share it all as one big family. It's really, really cool. They're feeling each other out. They're, they're getting to know each other. They're telling each other uh, about themselves. And they're detecting among themselves similarities and quirks. I remember meeting uh, Noah and Adam for the first time in May. And Aaron and Margo's there and we're, we're ordering. And everyone's like, no tomatoes. And I'm like, I hate tomatoes, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, everyone hates tomatoes? And like, everyone, screw the tomatoes. And all those kinds of things that we all know, like we see, oh, is it nature or is it nurture? Why do I <laughs> hold my hands when I'm thinking the same way that my father does right. or my mother does? And, 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 and imagine a big group of people like that who are experiencing it all together for the first time. There have been a couple of reunions now. They're getting closer to each other and they're spending more time with each other. They're going on vacations with each other. You know, Aaron went with a big group this last Christmas, went away on a ski trip um, to the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, I think, you know, for Margot, Barry's widow, who they spent their whole adult lives together, um, you know, for whom this might be in some ways problematic, right? Sure. She doesn't have that that biological connection to all of these new family members that her kids do or that Barry's sisters do. She really embraces it. I wouldn't have missed the roller coaster ride with Barry for anything. And now his gift of these children is such a beautiful, positive thing to have happened. Just Added to the story, I guess. (laughs) We all have one. This one's mine. And I think that's one of the really beautiful things about this story. And 
Barry died too young, but you know, in all these kids, there, there is a part of him that is still alive. So this story, Jeremy, the story that is in some ways clearly also your story. This is the story of you and your dad and your friendship with Barry and all of these people now, all of them. What does this all mean to you? What do you take away from this whole thing? Well, I mean, I think anybody, right, would have recognized if you had a friend who told you this story about their father, who was this celebrity of sorts, that there's a story here, right? But it, it, it's, it's richer than I imagined. Barry was a character, and he was the great imposter, and he wanted to be famous, but, you know, that didn't last long. And eventually, he moved away from that. What his real legacy is, what he imagined it to be when he died, were his kids and his grandkids. And they didn't know that he had done this, that he had been a sperm donor. But he knew, right? And so at some level, I would think, you know, when he died, part of him must have thought, who are they? Where are they? Mm. And now we know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and they've connected with each other. They have found each other. And that's a kind of miracle, which no one anticipated back then. Barry, if you knew Barry, you know he would love this. He would get such a kick out of it. <laughs> I think somebody told us this, but it's 100% right. He would be at every birthday party, every bar mitzvah. Maybe they're going to have bar mitzvahs now, now that, you know, they found out they're half Jewish, biologically. You know, <laughs> the weddings, all that. He would, he would get such a big kick out of it. There's also that, that, that kicker there, right? Pablo, you know, the great imposter. Well, mm. Barry's not with us anymore, but this is, this is the reveal. This is the unmasking that completes the story. Jeremy Schaff, thank you for telling us this story about this family and yours. <laughs> Thanks, Pablo, for indulging me. You can watch the entire E60 film, The Great Imposter and Me, on ESPN+, Plus, which you can find inside the ESPN app. And yeah... Go take a look at how all of these people look a hell of a lot like Barry Bremen. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>